With COVID vaccines rolling out and a growing number of schools reopening for in-person learning, it seems fair to say that everyone involved with American schools is looking forward to getting back to normal. But that doesn't mean everything about U.S. schools should go back to how it was before the pandemic. My guest today argues that one big change induced by COVID, the introduction of video cameras into many, if not most, American classrooms, deserves to become standard practice. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, and I'm happy to say one of our executive editors at EdNext. You can find Mike's new article, A Post-COVID Case for Classroom Cameras, in the winter 2021 issue of the journal and on our website at educationnext.org. Mike, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you, Marty. So we'll get to your new EdNext article in a moment, but this is also the first time we've spoken since President Biden's inauguration. So I thought it'd be fun to hear your thoughts on the new administration. Of course, the president has made reopening schools for in-person learning a key priority. And in a new blog post for Fordham, you write that Biden's soft touch in pushing reopening might be the only hope for schools in blue districts to reopen. Why is that the case? Yeah, well, so here's the deal, Marty. I think uh, I, I would certainly argue, as many people do, that in most places, it is safe for schools to reopen, especially elementary schools, uh, including full-time, right? Uh, I mean, depending on how you read the CDC guidance, uh, you know, I think that uh, an increasing number of places, that is going to be safe to do. But <laughs> the teacher unions see it differently. And so, you know, not surprisingly, what's happening around the country is in the places where the teacher unions are strongest, which seems to be on the West Coast, in some parts of the East Coast, like where I live in Maryland, you know, they're just really uh, taking a very hard line. Uh, and, and you can understand from their perspective, from the perspective of union leaders, they see their job as protecting their members. And if they even have a small group of members who feel afraid to go back to school, afraid for their own health, for the health of their families, uh, the unions are going to respond to that. And so the question is then, what, what can a President Biden do, uh, given his close ties to the unions uh, and given the fact that he's president? You know, he's not the president of a school board. He's not even a governor. He is the president, many steps removed from all this. So, you know, I understand the impulse for people wanting him to take a tougher line or to berate the unions publicly, but that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, instead, what appears to be happening is he's he's putting his arms around them uh, publicly. He's saying, you know, nothing but supportive things about teachers and their valid concerns. He is saying that uh, they need money to reopen. I'm not sure that's true, but he says they need more money and he's promising them that money and his relief bill that most people expect will be enacted by the middle of March. And I suspect behind the scenes, he and probably his folks are, are making it clear to the unions that once that relief bill passes, they do expect teachers to get on board. Uh, I don't know what else would work uh, better than this strategy. I don't know that this strategy will work for sure. That the unions in these strong union places, they hold all the cards. They, they basically, if they don't wanna go back to schools, they're not gonna go back to school. So this gentle cajoling in my view is probably the best you can expect for. So let's talk about that money. I think you're right to say that it can't be essential to reopening. Otherwise, how would we explain the large number of schools in many parts of the country that have been open throughout the 2021 school year without an additional infusion of federal dollars. But you could imagine that the administration could work with Congress to make that 
funding conditional on a move towards in-person instruction, at least in places where that were safe. Uh, would that count as part of your uh, soft touch or, or is that more the, the nuclear option? Yeah, look, I, I don't think that's a soft touch. I mean, again, I, I, it makes sense. I mean, of course, look, all of us are frustrated when we see schools not open when they should be open. But, uh, but I think that uh, that kind of move would just stiffen the spines of the union folks. I mean, everybody is playing this delicate dance, okay? Uh, the union presidents and the president of the United States all have to publicly tell their teachers who are afraid, hey, we are with you, we're going to fight for you, we're going to defend you. You know, Mike Antonucci has been great writing about this uh, for the 74. You know, they have to publicly take that stance. And then you hope behind the scenes they're saying, come on, guys, like this is at some point, you know, we got to get back to school. And so you just don't want to put them in the position where, they're, where, where they have to take a harder line than you want them to. You know, even out in California, Gavin Newsom, who is supported by the unions and the progressive Democrat, you know, he tried to kind of have a soft touch, but eventually he started getting tougher uh, and pushing more publicly against the unions. And to, as far as I can tell, that hasn't helped. So, you know, that, that's the delicate situation we've got. Now, look, if, we, if this huge funding bill passes and the unions are still saying no, especially if they're saying, you know, hey, next fall uh, is off the table in terms of us all coming back, uh, then look, I certainly would support something that looks like a nuclear option. That's ridiculous. I mean, this is a horrendous experience for our kids. We have got to get back to the point where kids are in school every day. And what about the administration's approach to K-12 schooling more generally? There's obviously not a lot of specific actions to evaluate at this point, but certainly there's some tea leaves that can be read. Based on what you've seen so far, what are you expecting when it comes to issues like standards and accountability and charter schools and choice that are so important to Fordham? Well, look, I, I think the, there's great news recently, which is that the administration chose not to waive the testing requirements for this spring, or, or at least they said that uh, states uh, can ask for some flexibility, like shortening the tests or even moving the tests to the fall, but they will not be open to getting rid of the tests entirely. That's huge. And I don't think uh, many of us you know, were willing to put money on that, uh, that decision. I think that was even could, could be considered a little bit of a surprise. It certainly made the unions mad and made the reform groups happy. So look, as, as someone who considers himself an education reformer, I'm happy. I mean, I think that, that getting back to testing is important. Um, I think if you look at what they've proposed in this relief bill, it's a huge amount of money. And so look, I think, that, I think the best way for Biden to bring the Democratic Party together in education is to spend a lot of money on education, okay? Everybody in the Democratic Party likes that, and a lot of Republicans like it too. Uh, if he can do that uh, and maybe throw some bones at the reformers, again, on testing, on maybe not going after charter schools all that aggressively, you know, I think this will be okay. You know, and, and one last point, Marty, charter schools are about to get a huge infusion of funding thanks to this relief bill. Uh, and so that's helpful also. It'll be interesting to see just how final that decision on testing actually is. If you read the letter to chief state school officers closely, you yeah. see that the administration does say that it will consider requests for additional flexibility on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so its real announcement was that it wasn't going to offer up front a blanket waiver to yeah. all states to effectively yeah. encourage them to apply. So I think sort of uh, 
any celebration on that issue may be a little bit premature, at least bears watching going forward. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. All right. So let's turn now to uh, cameras in the classroom. I was intrigued by this article in part because as someone who has been recorded teaching and struggles to bring myself to watch those tapes, <laughs> I can empathize with the classroom teachers around the country who are eager to see cameras out of their classrooms. I'm also open to being convinced, though. So what's your case? Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, a lot of people have talked about how this pandemic has been an accelerant, right? Trends that may have happened anyways, they just got sped up. Uh, you know, people talk about working from home, for example. Well, what about learning from home? Uh, you know, you, we now have 3 million teachers who have gotten at least a little bit used to teaching over Zoom or something like it, having their cameras on. Uh, and it seems like it would not take so much for that to continue post-pandemic. Uh, especially in places where teachers have gotten somewhat used to teaching from the classroom with a camera on. You know, in other words, this hybrid or simultaneous model where the teachers are teaching kids in person and at home. Now, I want to be clear. Everybody seems to agree that this is a terrible <laughs> instructional model uh, because it's like, it's like having a conference call when half the people are, you know, at home on Zoom and the other half are in a conference room together. You know, it's kind of the worst of both worlds, sort of you want to go one or the other. Uh, but uh, there are places that have invested real money in nicer cameras, the cameras, for example, that can follow teachers around the classroom uh, so that kids watching at home can see them. They're investing in better microphones and uh, they have figured out, again, the Zoom stuff or some of the basic tech stuff. So you start to wonder, well, this does open up some possibilities. Uh, you know, the most obvious ones for me are when you have a handful of kids who are at home because they're sick, you know, or hurt or something like that. Not so sick that they're actually sleeping all day, but, but sick, uh, you know, they could tune in from home. And maybe that's something we should, uh, we should embrace. You know, that's in my mind, good on a couple of fronts. We could actually tell parents, hey, if your child is at all sick, err on the side of keeping them home. How nice has it been that nobody's getting the flu this year because we're not giving it to each other, you know? Kids got the sniffles, don't give the sniffles to everybody else. Keep them at home and have them tune in and watch from home and follow along. If somebody's suspended, right? Uh, you don't want them disrupting the classroom, but you don't want them losing instructional time. Have them watch the course from down the hall. Uh, so it just opens up some new possibilities. And I think it's more doable. If most of the kids are there in the classroom, and you're just talking about a couple of kids who are watching remotely, especially if maybe there's not too much expectation of engaging those kids. That's more that they're just watching, uh, following along. You know, something is better than nothing. I say, why not try it? Yeah, so that seems like a uh, limited role that this could play, as long as it's not too distorting of what's going on in the classroom for the small number of students who would gain access, as you just said, something is better than nothing. Always the right question to ask about a new use of technology. But you suggest that there's some other functions that mm -hmm. having cameras on in the classroom as a routine matter of business yeah. uh, would serve. So tell us more sure. about your thinking about that. Yeah, well, look, I think, uh, you know, going all the way back to the early 2010s when teacher evaluation was the big topic, you know, there was certainly interest in recording lessons and then evaluating them rather than having to have people in the back of the classroom. In fact, the big Gates Met project had, that was exactly what they did is they, they recorded teachers. 
Uh, and then they could go back and, and do all kinds of interesting analyses of what they saw. You know, so to the extent that we think it's important for teachers uh, to get feedback on their teaching, cameras, uh, you know, make that much more feasible. You know, it means that they, for example, can get feedback from their peers, you know, who could be watching the videos before school or after school, but can't actually be in the classroom. Uh, you could have all kinds of uh, people outside of the school experts reviewing these, which in some cases could be seen as fairer or less biased. Uh, and, you know, I think there's cool uh, possibilities with using artificial intelligence even someday or machine learning stuff to try to uh, to try to figure out what's happening in, in the teaching and learning experience and give feedback to teachers. So I think there, there's some cool possibilities uh, there. You know, of course, there's going to be a big question around anything that's accountability. You know, what about actually uh, evaluating teachers' performance in a way that matters for their salaries or, or you know, the, the rest? Maybe we start with new teachers as, as a starting point uh, because we, everybody agrees that those teachers should be evaluated before they get tenure, and, and that could be a part of it. Uh, you know, also the question of whether parents can follow along and uh, when that's appropriate. Uh, we have gotten used to, as parents, to peeking over our kid's shoulder and, and getting to see what's going, what, what's happening. Um, and I think some of that can be healthy, again, as a check to, uh, you know, especially if the parents might be hearing concerning things from their kids about the quality of teaching and the parents can check it out. On, the, on their own. And, and finally, you know, to me, one of the big questions is going to be the, the analogy with, the, with what's happened in policing, you know, with body cams and dashboard cams, certainly, but also just with iPhones and smartphones out there. You know, to what degree does this kind of recording end up getting used when there's disputes around discipline? You know, we know there's this huge question right now about whether we're using discipline too much, whether it's biased, whether uh, kids of color, kids in poverty, or being treated unfairly. Well, look, uh, you know, if the cameras are on, in the, at least in the classroom, if, if something's happening in the classroom environment, you can go check the tape uh, and you don't have to rely on, on, you know, what various people say. You can see how did it play out uh, and, and that might be useful uh, as schools make some decisions. So that suggests a purpose that cameras would serve that would be attractive to teachers, but as you acknowledge sort of the fact that the first example you came up with was really about teacher evaluation, regardless of whether there's formal accountability or not. A lot of teachers are going to have misgivings. Uh, you point to the body cam analogy as one way to sort of make a comparison with another profession uh, where this has become much more common, if not standard practice. In the piece, you also point to judges as an example of public servants who carry out much of their work in a public recorded way. Uh, yeah. Say more about what you have in mind there. Well, look, every time I've written about this and I uh, put something about it on social media, the response always is from a teacher. How would you like it, Mike, if we had a camera on you all day and watched you work? And usually I say, well, that'd be incredibly boring for everybody involved, I trust. But, but you know, the point is, hey, you know, we're professionals and this feels intrusive. And, and the response to me is, look, you're doing the public's work. You know, I mean, first of all, you're with children. I mean, you should have no sense of privacy. You know, <laughs> you know we need to certainly have, we all know safeguards in place to protect uh, children. And there's been awful instances in the past and that hasn't happened. Uh, but, you know, the judge's situation, same thing. You know, when, when there are in some states that allow cameras in the uh, courtrooms, those judges now, 
uh, their work is very much transparent. People can watch how they are making decisions. Uh, and that seems appropriate. It's a public, uh, you know, they're, they're playing a public role. Now, the cameras don't follow them into their chambers, you know, when they're uh, doing their work and deliberating. And likewise, cameras shouldn't follow teachers into the teacher's lounge. Uh, but when they are teaching with children, uh, to me, it, it seems fair. Uh, I won't disagree, Marty, that's, you know, gonna be hard to get teachers on board with some of this stuff. But I do think the discipline piece is, is one thing that could be attractive to protect them, say, hey, this is, this is some insurance in case a kid accuses you of doing something nefarious, uh, you, you've got the tape. The other thing is, look, this, this question about kids uh, learning from home, uh, if you allowed, uh, if states allowed those kids to be counted as present, uh, even though they were not physically present, and in states that, uh, that use attendance rates as a way to fund schools, which a bunch of states still do, you know, they, they, every, it's based on the average daily attendance, that's real money. That could be, you know, school systems could see a, a real increase in, in revenue uh, because they're able to increase their, quote, attendance rates, even though some kids are at home. The funding incentive is fascinating. I'm still stuck in my head on this comparison to judges, uh, which I found <laughs> yes. really intriguing. I think one of the questions in my mind is what share of the public servant's total work is in this public as opposed to the private setting. As you yeah. note, a lot of what judges do is behind closed doors in yeah. their chambers, drafting opinions, holding private meetings. And I wonder if that ratio may not be exactly the same for yeah. the teacher. I think maybe the teacher being on video would be more uh, the annual recital or the uh, public event in the classroom mm -hmm. when parents come to celebrate their children's reading. And that might be the better comparison. But, but even so, I think it's, it's fascinating to think through. Let me end our conversation with this. I won't ask you to go on the record by predicting whether or not this is going to become standard practice. But instead, what I'll do is ask you, where do you think this idea is most likely to take hold in American education? Where will it get tried out and uh, learn whether or not this should become uh, part of our expectations? Yeah, that, that's interesting, Marty. Well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, first of all, I would say in terms of literally where, I think rural schools uh, you know, have already experimented with uh, new, quote, innovations, at least, in, in uh, learning, you know, the four-day week, you know, was something that has gotten popular in some rural areas before the pandemic as a way to uh, save time and save some costs for, you know, kids and teachers who travel a long way to school. Uh, you know, so you can imagine that in those rural areas, um, you know, where uh, the, the marginal costs of getting to school are much greater than, than using this kind of technology might, might be of more interest to them. And, and the second thing is, I, I really think around discipline. I mean, I think we are really facing a conundrum about how we discipline kids. There's broad agreement that we, we were worried about the racial bias and we were worried about kids losing time. Uh, but, you know, teachers are gonna really push back if they feel like their classrooms are becoming disruptive because they can't, you know, they can't remove kids who are being unruly. And I think we should expect after this pandemic, there's gonna be a lot of kids who have experienced serious trauma and have just even just being out of school for a year, there's gonna be a lot of kids acting out. I think we should expect, you know, the discipline challenges are gonna be greater than ever. 
And, you know, if, if one compromise is to do more in-school suspension, but do it in a way where the kids can keep following along, uh, I don't know. I think that's something that could really appeal to people. My guest today has been Mike Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and executive editor of Education Next. You can find his new article, A Post-COVID Case for Classroom Cameras, online at educationnext.org. Mike, thanks for being part of the podcast. My pleasure, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.